Luke chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I have deeply enjoyed our time in the Gospel of Luke in this season of Epiphany. And if you, you have not been here for a number of weeks or you are just returning from a vacation, uh, I'd like to remind us as a people of where we have been in this uh, series, if you will. One of the things that's interesting about the nature of the seasons in the church is that we continually are forced to re-examine Jesus Christ and to re-encounter the miraculous wonders that he did and his teachings. And one of the things that we have been looking at this year in each of our Epiphany messages has been how Jesus Christ does a miracle But in the midst of that miracle, through that miracle, around that miracle, he is doing a thousand other miracles to to make plain a spiritual reality, either the deficiency of someone or their need for Christ or the the power that he has on numbers of levels. Uh, What I mean by that is during his time, during what we saw him do with the fish, we, we examined how not only did he do something in Simon's soul, but it demonstrated his power that went beyond just uh, a trick or some sort of healing. It was, it was a, a miraculous display of eternal power, omniscient power, how he caused the fish to not only come into their nets, but we speculated, and I think it's a right observation from the text, that he not only caused the fish to come into their nets that morning, but he caused the fish to avoid their nets the night before. We have seen time and again that the Lord Jesus is the Lord over time. He is the Lord over matter. He's the Lord over souls. 
And now in this chapter, we will see Jesus Christ as not just the Lord over spiritual things in a spiritual versus physical sense, but He is the Lord over theology. He is the Lord over spiritual application of God's righteous rules to His people. And so in this chapter, as a continuation of what we've been experiencing in the season of Epiphany, when we come to Luke 6, we see that Jesus begins to display his power in a way that he makes plain that he is the one who has the authority, he is the arbiter of what is a correct interpretation of God's word and an incorrect interpretation and application of God's word. As he testified to the Pharisees in our reading, he, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. That doesn't mean he administrates the Sabbath in an arbitrary way, but that he is the one who is fully the true Israelite and is perfectly himself an embodiment of what the Sabbath was intended for God's people. Jesus here is showing not only his glorious power to heal and restore, he's also restoring God's people's understanding of what the day of rest was supposed to be. You see how that fits in with our theme of the season of Epiphany. Jesus is causing the fish to come into the nets so that Simon would see his need for Christ. Here, Jesus is healing this man's hand as he commands him to stretch out his hand. And not only is he healing a man's hand, he's healing the people of God in their broken, deficient understanding of what the Sabbath was intended to be. In fact, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but if you want some things to think about tonight, I would encourage you to to think, what is that withered man's hand a picture of? Just spend some time thinking about that tonight if you Uh, have a moment or two of prayer about this message. What Christ does in this chapter, as we'll examine in a few minutes, is not merely settling some sort of collegiate debate between two differing schools of thought, each of which are possibly equally valid. Jesus is not just bringing a different approach to understanding the law. No, rather, by his words and deeds, Jesus is showing the bankruptcy, the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of the Pharisees and their knowledge of God. And by doing so, he exposes the lack of usefulness that they have to their fellow man. You see, the Pharisees and the ruler of the synagogue are permitting this man with a withered hand to be among them. They not only do not have any power to heal him, but they want to stop his healing. In doing this, in exposing the moral bankruptcy of the Pharisees, Jesus is restoring the proper and right use of the Sabbath, not being a burden for man, but rather the Sabbath being for setting men loose. The Pharisees in this chapter we see their legalistic tradition had so twisted their understanding and reading of the law that they were unable to recognize the author of the law as he stood among them, standing right in front of them, the God of the ages, taken flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And as, they sta- as he stands in their midst, they want to kill him. To that end, I want to look at three applicate or three aspects rather of this chapter. First, the Pharisees' accusation about the grain fields, and as as the disciples walk, they accuse them of committing sin. Then Jesus' appeal to David. What a wonderful thing that Jesus does in showing himself as the greater son of David. 
I want to look at the healing of the man with the withered hand and how Jesus is, again, as I say, he's doing a thousand other things in, midst, in the midst of the main visible thing. And he's confronting and, and calling the Pharisees to account. And then finally, I want to apply this specifically to our age. I want to examine this passage and what it teaches us about our need for rest and our need to come to Jesus Christ, not just in a spiritual sense, but that the Sabbath being a right, proper understanding of God's holy, eternal law, how we must celebrate the Sabbath in the Christian faith. Uh, one of the things that I deeply enjoyed this morning was being able to listen to Andy Gerhardt as he described the good works. And if you were listening to his opening prayer, he mentioned about our need for rest. And that's what I want to highlight or apply this passage to. Jesus is teaching something beautiful about what the Sabbath is supposed to be in a way that helps us avoid legalism, but at the same time does not dismiss God's law as being something that is passed away or unapplicable to us. Luke here has written two accounts. These are two separate accounts, the first five verses and the latter six verses if or so. And he's beginning both of these accounts in the same way, on a Sabbath and on another Sabbath. He's doing this to emphasize the day which, on which it took place, and he is foreshadowing a controversy. If what took place on this Sabbath didn't have to do with the Sabbath, it's likely that Luke would have said one day when Jesus was walking through or teaching among. But no, he illustrates and he kind of leads us into what the nature of this controversy is going to be. Luke says, on a Sabbath, while he, Jesus Christ, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. For all of you who love the King James Version, I just want to break it to you. They were not plucking corn in the ancient time of, Egypt, of Israel. They were plucking wheat. They were picking off the heads of the grains. You can imagine if you've ever let your grass get too tall, it starts to go to seed. And those little tops of the heads, the disciples are picking them off, putting them in their hand, moving their hands back and forth, letting the chaff blow away and taking the, the grain. Not exactly something appetizing, right? Keep that in mind. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? The first thing I want to say is from the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, they say, Matthew and Mark say that the Pharisees directed this question to Jesus, not to the disciples. The Pharisees' question here is an accusation of sin wrapped around a faulty premise. What I mean by that is they're committing a fallacy. They're committing a logical fallacy. If you've been trained in rhetoric, you'll see the aspect of their deception. They're begging the question. They have already judged that what Jesus is doing and the disciples are doing is a violation of the Sabbath when we know from the law of God it is plainly not a violation of the law of God. To be sure, harvesting one's field would be a violation. But the law plainly teaches a difference between harvesting, collecting in the grain, and gleaning for immediate refreshment. In Deuteronomy 23 and tw uh, verses 24 and 25, it reads, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, if you own a vineyard, this doesn't sound very good, you may eat your fill of the grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle into your neighbor's standing grain. 
What's the point of this passage? Well, in the law of God, it was given to Israel to teach them about righteousness. It is theft to put your sickle to your neighbor's field. It is a form of harvesting. It's harvesting for their field. But in all of the agricultural laws that God gave his people, he gave them blessings in the midst of those. And some of them were for the poor. For example, one of the gleaning laws was that you could, you could harvest your field, but you could not go all the way up to the edge. You had to leave a margin in your field, and that margin became a social margin. It became the place where the poor and the alien could come in and glean and take from the field. God's law was gracious to the establishment of this nation and the forming of it as a people. And so the law teaches, not only in the gleaning laws, but in these laws, a difference between harvesting. If you were poor and destitute, you could take from a field assuming that field was large enough to be considered an actual field. Now, if you came into your neighbor's garden and took down all of the apples of the tree, that would be violating the intention of this passage because you'd have to put some in your bag, wouldn't you? The point that the law was giving here is we don't have 7-Eleven and Quick Trip on the corners. When we need food immediately, we have to find it. And if not, we might die on our journey. That's what this law was given. It was intended to give a provision for the wanderer who lacks provision. Therefore, what the disciples are doing is a clear understanding of Deuteronomy 23, 25. In fact, some of them might have thought, oh, are we supposed to do this? And then they may have even remembered God's law was given to us for our provision and our blessing. The question that I want to ask, therefore, since it's so plain to me and you from this passage in Deuteronomy 23 and with the gleaning laws and all the other laws about agriculture, if it is so clear, how is it that the Pharisees accused Jesus and the disciples of breaking the Sabbath? Didn't they know these laws from Deuteronomy? Many Pharisees actually memorized the Pentateuch. Many Pharisees not only memorized the Pentateuch, they taught every week in churches. And unlike us who have the entire completed scriptures, they only had a few books to read from. Now, to be sure, the Old Testament is about 72 to 73% of our Christian scriptures. However, they primarily focused their teaching upon the Pentateuch. Just like we spend most of our time in the New Testament in the modern era, The Pharisees of their days did not spend their time exegeting large portions of Scripture outside the Pentateuch. It was common to read from the Pentateuch and the prophets and occasionally from other places. Now, they would use those other places, but it did not have the primacy like the Pentateuch had. It cannot be the case that these Pharisees did not know this law. Rather, they would have known, but I think a different understanding or a different motivation has to be the case. Instead of knowing this law and applying it to the disciples, judging them rightly, they accused the disciples for breaking God's law and Jesus for tolerating it. They are now at this moment blinded by their hatred of Jesus Christ. They are so blinded by their hatred of Jesus Christ and, their, and his disciples that they are unable to judge ethically. They are prevented from applying the law of God because the Spirit of God is the one who gives the right use of the Word of God. They here in this moment are trying to test Jesus to see if he's going to protect his disciples 
or if they're going, or if he's going to uphold the word of God, that is, as they saw it. Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees shows, therefore, his glory as a reader of Scripture. When you're reading the Gospels, you need to be aware of a major theme of the life of Jesus. Jesus is not just the miracle worker and the one who will make an atonement. Jesus, in this passage, is presented as the true Israelite, the right reader of God's law, who meditates upon it day and night and therefore is blessed. Jesus is being demonstrated as the one who understands Scripture, who treasures it, and then uses it not only to be blessed, but also to settle the matters of life. He treasures the details of all of God's word so that he would rightly understand God's ways. They appeal to Moses. They appeal to an understanding of the Sabbath as a cessation from work that is actually twisting what Moses intended, and Jesus corrects their interpretation, appealing to the history Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and all those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? Jesus turns their question on its head. He says, Have you not read? It's hard to feel the force of this. I actually spent about 10 or 15 minutes last night trying to come up with a a meditation, but this would be essentially saying to a carpenter, have you never used a circular saw? Have you never used a hammer, you roofer? Have you never read a story about David would have been more than a slap in the face to the Pharisees? He is accusing them, clearly accusing them, of never reading with any reality. Yes, their eyes have glanced over the page, but their souls, being far from God, have so twisted the Scriptures that they were not able to reconcile what David did, a clear violation of the letter of the law, but not of the intent. And so Jesus is appealing to the case laws. These statements deeply offended their religious sensibilities. The Pharisees not only considered themselves readers of God's Word, they, as Jesus said, have put themselves in the place of Moses. They've assumed the authority of teaching the Word of God to God's people. These people claim to teach Moses, but Jesus appeals to the case law from the histories, saying that they've misunderstood Moses. Again, Jesus Christ's glory is revealed in this way. In doing this, Jesus teaches us and at the same time reveals his own doctrine of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture, and the Scriptures cannot be broken. What do I mean by those two points? What I mean is Jesus is asserting by his reference that David understood Moses. And because the word of God doesn't malign David for doing this, they have misunderstood, the Pharisees have misunderstood Moses. Likely, or likewise, not only is he saying Scripture interprets Scripture, but by appealing to David, he is not appealing to David saying David was discongruous with Moses. He's not saying that David changed what Moses wrote through his living. Rather, he says that the Scriptures cannot be broken. Referencing David, Jesus is asserting that the Scriptures present a unified and non-contradictory teaching of what righteous living is supposed to be. Their wrongful reading of the law of the Sabbath is so oppressive, he's saying, that not even the man after God's own heart could keep the Sabbath in their understanding. 
You see, he's saying something about their, their twisting of what the purpose of the Sabbath was. His appeal to David, therefore, speaks of his identity as the greater son of David, the Messiah. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is this. If the scriptures did not accuse David of sinning when entering God's house and eating the bread of the presence, how can the Pharisees accuse Jesus of sinning by walking through a field and plucking off heads of grain? You see, if it was a violation, it would be much more clear Walking into God's house and taking something from God's things, David should have, if he was breaking God's law, he should have been struck down. We, in fact, see this from time to time. When people violate God's temple, they're destroyed. Uzziah, who puts his hand out to to steady the ark of the Lord, is struck down dead immediately. And yet David is not only not struck down in the account, but he also is not even slighted in the text. Unlike his sin with Bathsheba, he's not rebuked at all. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is what, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, essentially. He's saying what's good for David is good for David's greater son. Having demonstrated his right understanding and interpretation, Jesus therefore reveals his identity as the Son of Man. He, Jesus, said to the Pharisees, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, as he says, is the one who rightly rules over what the Sabbath intends. In this account and the next, these two portions that form one section of of Luke chapter 6, Jesus is not arbitrarily breaking the Sabbath. Hear me clearly, brothers and sisters. Jesus did not say, I am breaking the Sabbath. The Sabbath is unimportant. What he is saying, have you not read how sometimes seemingly unlawful things are permitted? because the law is not just the letter, but the spirit. Jesus himself, we know, is the rest for God's people. And because he is the perfect embodiment of the Sabbath, it would be folly to say that Jesus is abrogating the Sabbath. No, Jesus, just like in the Sermon on the Mount, is putting the Sabbath into force. It's very important that we remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, he who, lust, he who looks upon a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Likewise, you've heard it said that you should not commit murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother has already murdered him in his heart and is going to be guilty. He's going to stand judgment for that. He's doing exactly the same thing here with the fourth commandment that Jesus has done in other places with the rest of the commandments. Luke intentionally, therefore, places these accounts together, even if they didn't follow immediately in time. He says, on a Sabbath, in verse 1, and then in verse 6, on another Sabbath. Luke is wanting us to see how Jesus challenged the false understanding of the Sabbath throughout his entire ministry. And in fact, one of the things that we're going to hear actually sounds like a foil. The question that Jesus asks them is like the reverse question of what they had asked in the previous story. In verse 6, Luke says, On another Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. I want you to imagine this. If it helps to close your eyes, I I routinely do this while I'm 
reading the Word of God. I try to picture what's going on because there's so many details in this story that are important to remember. Jesus comes into the synagogue. He preaches and teaches, just like in prior chapters we've encountered. And then it says that the Pharisees are there. Imagine them lined up on the first few rows of the Sabbath. Maybe they had chairs instead of pews. In the first few chairs, or maybe around the center of the circle, I'm not sure what the architecture was like, and I I want you to imagine them glaring at him while he is teaching. And the reason they are doing so, according to Luke, who understands what took place, not only through the disciples' account, but being a writer of Scripture, being moved by the Holy Spirit, Luke is able to say the intentions of their thoughts and hearts. And in examining what's going on, we have to say what pitiable wretches are these Pharisees. This is a horrible thing that's going on in this synagogue. The Lord God has come in the person of Jesus Christ and is rightfully, beautifully expounding and applying the Scriptures to God's people. He is ministering to them out of the overflow of His relationship with God in private prayer. He's explaining the sense of the word just like Ezra had set in place when the exiles had returned. And Jesus is giving himself in the ministry of the word to his people. And these Pharisees are only wanting to hear when he makes a mistake. They could have been hanging on his every word for life, and yet their spirits are so darkened. They're they're so far from God. They're such children of Satan that accusation has completely filled their hearts. Haven't you ever thought, boy, it would have been great to hear a sermon from the Lord Jesus, or it would have been good to be able to sit under the teaching of the apostles? Unless God has done a great work in your soul to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus, it wouldn't have been better than hearing a normal sermon. These Pharisees are sitting under God's teaching. God in the flesh is explaining the scriptures to them, and all they want to hear is when he makes a mistake or says something that they could accuse him with. These Pharisees are looking to accuse Jesus Christ of erring in what he says and what he does. They're not sitting there hoping that a miracle would happen. I hope that's how you come to church every week on the Lord's Day, that you are sitting there hoping that a miracle would happen in your heart and in your neighbor's heart and in the hearts of the people that God is drawing to this church congregation. I hope you're hoping and waiting for and praying for silently, God help that minister preach the word. God help these songs communicate truth. These Pharisees have taken the prime place in the synagogue, established themselves as rulers, and want God to get out. That's what these Pharisees are doing. In verse 8, it says that Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And the man rose and stood there. Jesus' glory here is revealed through his zeal for righteousness in God's people. Again, I've mentioned this now three weeks in a row because I'm going to do it. I don't like Jesus' videos. Now, the reason I say that is not because I think it's a second commandment violation, though some people use them in terrible ways. I believe that they just communicate subtle things that aren't true from the text. Very often we see pictures of Jesus or acting or depictions of Jesus in which John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles are merely polemic against the Pharisees. 
And it's impossible to capture the secret hidden motive. Jesus wants to encounter these Pharisees. And the only thing that he can bring is the same thing he brings to everyone, is the truth, the sword of God's word. And he brings the sword here in order to cut to the quick of the Pharisees, to show them that gangrene and cancer, cancerous pus has filled their hearts. Jesus is glorious as the true Israelite who refuses to be complacent with the state of God's people. Jesus will not make peace with the sin of the Pharisees. He will not tolerate them to exist in this synagogue without pushing the point. He refuses, Jesus refuses to fear man by refusing to do something which would anger them and yet he knew was pleasing to God. We know from John's gospel that Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. And likewise, we can understand that the Father sent Jesus to rebuke the Pharisees and to to bring together the redempted people, the, the redeemed people, the redeemed remnant into the church. Knowing their thoughts and yet choosing to act, Jesus is doing this intentionally. Jesus is forcing a provocation with their evil hardness of heart. He is not just letting them exist on their own. I want to confess something. I've I've read Luke 6, 9 and the parallel passages and verses in the Gospels, I, I would guess dozens of times, if not hundreds of times. And I never really understood what he's saying here. And there is a point at which, as a sidebar, I'll just say, brothers and sisters, as you're reading the Word when you do not understand something, sometimes for the sake of time, you have to move on. And other times, for the sake of God's glory, you must wrestle with the text until, like Jacob with the angel, it blesses you before the breaking of day. And I want to say that it took me a very long time to understand Jesus' question. Some of you haven't ever had this problem with this verse. But I always thought it was kind of perplexing why Jesus said this. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, I asked you, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? To save life or destroy it? Well, clearly it's it's wrong. It's a rhetorical question, and I never really gave any thought to it. But actually, I want to emphasize that Jesus' question is a retort, and it's a challenge to their question in the prior account. If you remember in the prior account, they said to him, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Questioning his motives after the fact. They accuse him of doing evil on the Sabbath, and then they ask him, why are you doing that? They, they assume he's breaking the law of God, and then he, they, they assume that they have the right to question Jesus. But he asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? They asked, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? You see, they've just asserted themselves in the prior account as being the arbiters of what's good to do on the Sabbath and what's not good to do. And so, as they've established them as teachers, he asks them a question. It's an ironic thing. A few of you are getting the joke. You see, the scriptures joke all the time. If we're, if we're in on the joke, it makes a lot of sense. In doing this, Jesus is dismantling their entire analytical grid of the Sabbath because they've made everything about the leaves of the tree. Jesus, you and your disciples are taking those heads of the grain. It doesn't matter that you're hungry. It doesn't matter that you're not harvesting. You're doing this on the Sabbath. You're doing work. 
you can't do any work on the Sabbath. The, the pharisaical twisting of what the Sabbath was is so extreme that they actually had a rule against spitting on the Sabbath, lest your spit land on a germ or a seed and cause it to germinate. It sounds ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous understanding of what God gave the Sabbath for. Jesus is not just saying, you are concerned with the leaves of the tree, and you ought to be concerned with the root. No, he's dismantling their entire authority. Even in their own rabbinic tradition, the Pharisees recognized that saving a life is permissible on the Sabbath. They had in their writings about the Sabbath a phrase that translated into English sounds very poetic. Where there is the threat of death, the law flies away. What that means is that when someone is about to die, someone who is charged with saving that person's life may violate the law to not work on the Sabbath in order to save that person's life. And so when he asks them this question, is it good to save a life? It's a joke. They know it's good to save a life. What's the other part of the question? Is it okay on the Sabbath to destroy a life? Jesus is not only Jesus is not dismantling the real Sabbath, but he's revealing their murderous hatred. He's revealing their murderous hatred. Why did he ask if it was lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? The reason he's asking if it's lawful to do harm and to destroy life on the Sabbath is because by the Spirit of God, he's looking in their hearts and seeing murder. They're watching him in that moment to see if he will break the fourth commandment so that they can put him to death. The reason I know this is because the penalty for breaking the Sabbath is stoning. They are sitting there wanting to murder God in the flesh. And he says to them, is it lawful to do evil on the Sabbath? He's accusing them of breaking the sixth commandment on the day of the Sabbath. He's saying, you are filled with murder. You're worried if I'm going to do something good, you're plotting my demise. That's what he means by saying, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? You're so caught up with whether I'm going to do something good that you have become given over and you're plotting my murder, you're plotting my death. In verse 10, it says, After looking around at them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Nevertheless, Jesus provokes them that they might see their need for deliverance from sin and restoration of God. Jesus, before he does this miracle, looks around at his hearers, and he makes sure none of them are going to miss what he's about to do. He wants to make it plain to the Pharisees. Verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Filled with fury, they are now manifesting outwardly the secret sins of their heart. As I said, surely forming plans to murder someone would violate the sixth commandment, and doing so on the Sabbath, as Christ said, is certainly a violation of the fourth. In this entire account, we see that Jesus is exalted as the one who brings healing and deliverance. He interprets God's word rightly. In both accounts, which are one whole section of Luke's 
gospel, Jesus is dismantling false and legalistic interpretations of God's righteous law. God's law was given, and and the New Testament agrees it is holy, it is righteous, it is good. The law is not laid down for the righteous, but for the sinners. It teaches us of our need for Jesus Christ. It teaches us of sin and of judgment, and it is a wonderful and good thing. In all of these counts, Jesus never dismisses the importance of the Sabbath, but only their twisted perversions of it. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul argues that the giving of the law through Moses in the time of the Exodus did not dismiss or discount the promise that was given 430 years earlier to Abraham. God gave the law in order for the people to receive the promises given to Abraham, but the law, as Paul argues, does not set aside the promise. Likewise, I would argue that the giving of the law did not, did not change God's creation ordinance of a day of rest. In Genesis 2, 2 and 3, before the giving of the law ever took place, it says that on the seventh day, God rested, or excuse me, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. As God's people, therefore, we do not just find a metaphor alone of rest in salvation in Jesus Christ. I want to suggest that the modern evangelical understanding of the right use of the Lord's day as a day of rest has become Gnostic. It's become detached from any sort of sense of incarnation. It's become spiritual alone. Yes, Christ is, as the Heidelberg Catechism points out, the eternal rest for God's people. And yet, at the same time, God has established His Lord's day in order to be a respite, in order to be a safe harbor for weary sinners and saints alike to come into God's presence through the ministry of the Word and through sacraments. The Lord's day is not just something that is spiritually celebrated In the Christian faith, we do find rest for our souls, and that rest affects all days. It affects every day. But we do not just cease from self-justifying labors by trusting in Him in Christ. He also, God also, in the work of sanctification, delivers us from the pursuit of trivialities and idolatries which vie for our affections. These things crowd out our capacity to commune with God. What am I speaking about? I would gather or guess that some of you were up late last night watching Netflix into the wee hours of the morning. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know who you are. The Holy Spirit knows who you are. I would also guess that some of you have been on your phones during this sermon. I haven't been watching. And I don't want to watch because it's not my job. What I do intend to say is the Lord has given you rest from your labors. You have found refuge in Christ if you have placed your trust in him. But we must not be deluded by the spirit of our age, which is 24-7, which is instantaneous push notifications. I work in tech. I know I see the sausage made. They, they work in these systems, in Netflix, Facebook, all of these systems are designed to be addictive. 
They're designed to impress upon you a sense of solical urgency of, I have to hear the latest news, and I need to be, in, I need to be entertained. And yet, part of our sanctification is that God becomes, as we sung this morning, our highest joy, our deepest joy. I've been wanting to sing that song we sang this morning for months. Because when I heard it, it was one of the first hymns that I saw exalt God as our... He's not just my salvation. He doesn't just deliver me from wrath, precious as those things are. He's my joy. He's much better than anything else. This is what the Sabbath was given to God's people for. It's not so that we could become legalistic like the Pharisees and say, you cannot check Facebook on the Sabbath. I'm probably going to check Facebook at some point today. My point is, what is our givenness to these things? Are we so distracted by trivial, unimportant matters that we are so busy, not only on the Lord's Day, but throughout the week, so that when we come to worship publicly and call on His name publicly, we are unable to because our souls are deluded with entertainment. Your heart is an organ, and it has a capacity. It has a definite max capacity for things. And if it is so filled with the fear of man and the enjoyment of pleasure that we never make room for God, we are missing out on the point of the rest that He wants to bring to our souls. As Christians, we must understand our need for weekly restoration to attend to the eternal matters of life. In the days of the Puritans, they actually set aside the entire Lord's Day for not only public attendance, but also private family worship and individual secret prayer. Now, I am not advocating for not doing anything other than quote-unquote spiritual things on the Sabbath. If you've been working a back-breaking job every day, go for a walk. If you stand at work every day, take a nap to the glory of God. What my point is, is this. We are often distracted with unnecessary and trivial things, which not only have no eternal good, but they actually don't even bring any joy to us. It's just a mundane trying to medicate the numbness of our souls because we haven't communed with God. The Lord's day is not given to be a burden. The Sabbath is not, man is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Some people object to this sort of call to ceasing labor or ceasing persistent recreation that does not bring a blessing. And they say that they're too busy to attend corporate worship or that book's just too good to put down or they're too busy to rest and to commune with God or, or do a work of service for their fellow Christian or even outreach to, their fellow un, or to, to an unbeliever. But this is a trivial objection. It's, it's a lightly removed objection. Here's why. In a sermon on the importance of leading family worship, Dr. Joel Beakey quoted Samuel Davies, who was a Puritan minister and theologian. Now, this is about the leading of family worship. And the reason I told you Joel Beakey quoted Samuel Davies is because I don't like quoting without having a reference. If you want to watch this reference, I can send you the link. In this sermon on, Joel, on, on family worship by Joel Beakey, Joel Beakey quotes Samuel Davies. So now I'm quoting Joel Beakey, quoting Samuel Davies. He says of the objection that people are too busy for family worship, this, were you formed for this world only, there might be some force in this objection, but how strange does such an objection sound coming from an era of eternity? 
Pray, what is your time given to you for? Is it not principally that you might prepare for eternity? And have you no time to invest in your family in what is the greatest business of your and their lives? The point is this, brothers and sisters, if we are so deluded with worldly pleasures and seeking after worldly passions and seeking after efficiency, so-called productivity in labor, that we work seven days and that we entertain seven days and that we push God to the periphery, only allowing Him to enter into our lives on Sunday morning, if even that, then we are deceived in what we were put on this earth for. For those who are in Christ, they have truly entered God's rest. Yes and amen. We do not keep the Sabbath to become righteous. And indeed, the Ten Commandments as they record the Sabbath were never given for that purpose. So objecting to a weekly pattern of rest on the grounds that we ought not to be justified by doing the law has no force because the Ten Commandments weren't given so that man would be justified. They were given so that man might recognize sin. And here is what the Sabbath shows us. Here's what celebrating the Lord's Day week in and week out shows us is that I am tempted to push God to the periphery of my life. I am tempted to stay up too late before the Lord's Day and give myself to entertainment and to hour-long, four-hour-long Netflix binges. We are tempted by these things. So my appeal to you is this. If you have actually entered God's rest, if you have received the promise of eternal rest with God, how much more ought we be able to set aside the Lord's day for worship and restoration? I use the word restoration, not recreation, because although I believe it is a recreative use, what we call recreation is not often actually recreation. It doesn't recreate us. Now, am I saying that you can't play baseball on, the Sunday, on Sunday? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it's a matter of personal and private application. However, if you, the greatest grief in your heart is that Chick-fil-A is closed this afternoon, <laughs> I would submit that you are like what Malachi said. Malachi said that the people of God said that the Sabbath is odious and, oh, when will the Sabbath be over? It's the exact opposite of what God had given his people in a pattern of worship and rest. If you believe that you will rest with God forever and enjoy him forever and spend all of the rest of your time forever with him, then how much more can't you start to do that now? If you know that you will spend eternity with God, is it such a great task to set aside hours of the day or even one day in the week to spend with him? As the Westminster Catechism teaches us, slightly twisting it, how can we glorify God if we're too busy to enjoy Him? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him fully forever. How can we, enjoy God? How can we glorify God if we're not willing to enjoy Him? I would guess that many of you are like me. I have many books that I want to read about the Christian faith. I have many parts of the Scripture that I want to examine more. And yet, at the same time, I'm pulled in a thousand different directions. And one of the blessings in my life has been that I usually use the rest of the Lord's Day to take a nap and to, if I can, read a godly book. And it has been a wonderful blessing. Not only is the guilt of my book pile lessening over time, but as Christians, we have to work from, lab- from rest. 
Our work should proceed from a day of rest, that everything that we do in life is built upon by faith the work of Christ, and therefore in our week we might often symbolize it by working on Monday, having rested fully spiritually with our God on His Lord's day. So my call to you is this this morning. As God's redeemed people, we must resist legalism, but likewise must recognize the significant blessing of God's plan of restoration in each Lord's day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a joy to us and that you have given your law to your people. We know that you have set us apart so that your name would be gloried and hallowed and it would be honored. But Lord, we also know that you have given us the spirit so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us from faith to faith. Lord, we ask that you would give us a great understanding of our need for rest and that we would honor you with our schedules and honor you with our time and we would make room in our lives to commune with you in your word and in private prayer. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.